0: I'm going to play you an audio clip that you've likely heard before and I want you to think about what it is that you hear being repeated afterwards. Play it to a friend or someone else that you've got around and just see what it is that they're hearing and ask them, is it the same thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you may have just found is that you heard the name Laurel being repeated over and over, or perhaps you heard the word Yenny. This interesting phenomenon where we have the same sound frequencies hitting our eardrums as the person sitting next to us, yet resulting in a completely different perception, has become an interesting question for neuroscience. And today, we're going to break this and other illusions down and discuss what it is we can learn from such illusions in relation to pain and the treatment of human experiences in the context of healthcare. Hello, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. I am your host today, Brendan Mowat, jumping on today instead of your usual host, Daniel Abilla. I've hosted a number of guests on our podcast and i always really enjoy the opportunity to sit down with some incredible minds and today's guest is no different. But before we jump in, if you do enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and share with your colleagues and friends and don't forget to check out our online and face-to-face courses for health professionals as well as our clinician mentorship program at www.tkex.org. And without further ado, I would like to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Daniel Harvey, who has just published a new book with Professor Lorimer Moseley titled Pain and Perception, A Closer Look to Why We Hurt. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks, Brendan. Very happy to be here. I've been really excited about this chat with you. So thanks for making the time. You have quite the CV and I've been a fan of your work for some time. Not to mention that some of your work has obviously really influenced my own research as well. Would you tell us uh, a little bit more about yourself and what's brought you to
1: now? Sure, yeah. Well, um, I guess first, thanks again for having me. I think this is just a, a, in part a nice excuse for us to sit down and have a chat. Of course, we've uh, moved in some of the same circles, been involved in Pain Revolution together and um, now at the University of South Australia together working with um, Laura Mosley and... And uh, Tash Stanton and other others here. So, um, yeah, that's um, yeah, great to be here. Um, uh, I guess in short, I'm a physio by uh, background. Also, think of myself as a pain scientist. Um, so, I've, I've got um, some clinical experience, which has mostly uh, been in that musculoskeletal sort of domain. So, I sort of see myself um, at that junction between musculoskeletal and, and chronic pain uh, practice. Also, do some lecturing uh, in the musculoskeletal team here at, at UniSA. Uh, as you said, I'm now the, the author of a, a, a new book, which I'm sure we'll um, talk about uh, quite a lot today. And uh, I guess aside from that, I'm son of farmers. I'm a husband, a father of one, a cancer survivor, and uh, that's about it. Right,
0: that's that's quite a CV. And I think you're even being quite modest from... Uh, what I have read about you and know of you as well. So um, hopefully some of that comes through today in today's discussion, which will, which will be really interesting. I'm really excited about this. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about my experience with your book. So obviously I got a copy of your book and um, had a bit of a read and congratulations, first of all. I think, I think it's a really nice book. It's well put together. The illustrations are fantastic um and the simplicity of it describing such complex ideas and concepts I think you you you've done a great job you you and Laura Mosley obviously your, your co-author um, have done a fantastic job putting this together. Um, I think one of the the things that sort of jumped out to me was was that simplicity of it but Having my background, you know, where we talk about, you know, theories of predictive processing and, you know, relating this to pain and human experience and consciousness and these really complex, complex mm. um, concepts, I think you've done a real real nice job to kind of bring it to the lay realm but also provide something that is tangible for a clinician to uh, either engage with themselves or use mm. with, clients and and family and friends to to, to start conversations Mm. and I think that was really quite cool. Um, There's one one particular um, illusion so um, to give some context there's a a whole bunch of sort of visual illusions and and you're using these visual illusions to describe different experiences and and what we can take from that for pain Um, and and I think that's one of the underpinning motivators for for, for us to have this conversation Mm -hmm. uh, with more so audio illusions rather than visual illusions. And There was one particular illusion, um, and it's known as the Thatcher illusion uh, for, those, for those of you at home, and it's where we've kind of got a face that's um, upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, one of those faces was a colleague of ours, mm-hmm. um, Anna Vogelzang. and I looked at that image, and I knew what the illusion was. I knew already what, what you were going to do, and I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, that's Anna. Like I, I know who that is, and and it's definitely that. And I'm like, oh, but I know the illusion, but it looks like Anna. And as soon as I flip that book upside down, all of a sudden Anna ceased to exist. It was this weird um, amalgamation of Anna's features, where her lips have been turned upside down and her eyes are upside down, and and it was like all of a sudden very very apparent that. This image, her face was wrong. It was not correct anymore. So as soon as I was faced with uh, this image of Adam in uh, in a context in which I was very familiar and had these strong prior experiences with, it was very easy to identify these issues. Mm-hmm. But upside down, I, I could mm-hmm. not tell. Mm-hmm. And even when I flipped it back around to being you know, the book the upright way, but her face upside down, it looks. 100% like her again. I mm-hmm. could not even pick up, knowing that information, mm-hmm. that it wasn't Anna. And I thought that was just a really compelling moment for me to mm-hmm. say, you know, th- th- these illusions can really have profound effects and, and create really interesting discussions. Mm. Um, that we could you know dive into more and more and so a part of that I I gave to my teenage son and and his girlfriend and they looked through the book and I got some of their feedback and they were amazed by you know some of these things so even at that age it started a conversation in the household and and we could talk about these things and um, it was really really enjoyable so thank you for, for the work you've done there bringing something that I love into my household and being able to have a conversation about those things. Thank you, it's lovely to hear. So on that, tell me, what was the catalyst for this book like? What has driven you to, to creating it? Um,
1: yeah, I guess a few things. Um, I guess it, it almost came about by accident um, in that, uh, like you, I was involved in the pain revolution um, and, and part of that is spreading the, uh, a modern understanding of pain to rural and remote communities. And the, the small part of that that I've been most involved with is this brain bus where We go out into communities and we set up these interactive illusions with people in the community, people who pass by, and we use different illusions to highlight different characteristics of perception and then to use that uh, to link to pain and and make those links between how we know perception works because of visual and auditory illusions to how we know pain works. and I think we'll <clears throat> we'll get into some of those nuances of illusions and what different illusions tell us, uh, and how we can use those different nuances of perception to talk about the nuances uh, of pain. Um, so I guess um, being involved with that was the the first catalyst. Um, but and um, you know as the as the years went on, running those brain buffs uh, events, we got really good at telling different stories about pain with different illusions. Um, and knowing that I wasn't going to be around forever, I wanted to put that in a form that other people could could, could learn from, um, shorten that learning curve of, you know, identifying what illusions highlight different features of pain. So um, I started to put together what I was calling a brain bus manual and then just thought this would make a great book. And then, of course, and listed Lorimer and helping to refine that. And then finally, Group, the, the publisher, which um, just made a great team to, you know, build out something that I think is really useful and something that I'm really proud of. Yeah, that's really
0: cool. It was always interesting to see you guys, you know, at the Brain Bus and, you know, in, in these like public areas. And, and you'd always have, like, quite a lot of people there interested in, you know, going, what's going on here? Did you have any... Um, I guess, standout moments where you had people who, you know, really had that moment of surprise and realisation with, you know, a learning experience from those illusions that you could talk to?
1: Yeah, we did. We definitely had some of those wow, aha kind of moments. Um, one, one of the popular ones there was the a hollow face illusion. Um, and it's basically a, a statue of a face, but the face curves inwards rather than outwards. Uh, and we would position it so when people walking past would would see it, but they would almost universally see it as a face that curved outwards rather than a face that curved inwards. And But as they got closer, and sometimes we even needed to point it out to them that it was curving inwards, suddenly they would see that what they saw as a, a face that curved outwards was actually curving the other way. And, um, uh, you know, those experiences that you can... You, you can walk around and question and, and then you can walk back and see the illusion again, um, I guess created some of the most, most powerful um, conversations and learning experiences and you know, that was a beautiful um, illusion to link to the idea that our expectations powerfully influence our perception and, of course, that expectation comes from, well, that's our experience of faces is that they curve outwards and so our past experience of what a face should look like um, just sort of overwrites what's actually right there um, in front of people. So, um, so I guess, yeah, there were many experiences that were just able, I guess, to, to peel back the curtain, I guess, to let people see behind the curtain of what's really happening in terms of sensory processing and, and perception. But also we often just saw this as a bit of a primer we often run these before our evening education events and we didn't we didn't set out to 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 fully change the way that people think in that one session um, but instead we used these illusions largely to sort of disrupt people's assumptions about how perception works to sort of perturb, perturb their certainty in how and how sensation works um, and I guess to create an openness so that when um, they went back to their clinicians and heard other things about pain, they had a greater sort of openness. Or if they came to our evening events, um, that, ex- yeah, we- yeah, that's, that was the hope, really, that we, um, it was a learning experience that created an openness to take on new ideas about, about pain. Very often, we didn't take people right through to, um, you know, converting them to our, our new and modern way of thinking about, about pain. Yeah, wow, uh, there's so much in that.
0: Um, and, and one of the, the parts that kind of struck me just then that I probably hadn't really thought about too much before is, you know, you, you using the, the hollow face to grab people as they're walking by, kind of almost like a marketing strategy <laughs> to, to, to spy that curiosity. Mm-hmm. first. I and mean, I see a lot of, um, I guess, with my own um, clients and patients, you know, you know, how do we create curiosity? How do we kind of get them... Yeah, a little bit of a grab mm. to kind of go, I really want to know more or I really want to kind of explore.
1: Yeah, you have you have to turn people into active learners. Um, people don't absorb information in a meaningful way unless they already feel like they've got a reason to learn. And I think I think that's one of the things illusions can do is go, Oh, hang on. Maybe I, maybe my assumptions about my pain aren't quite correct i better listen you know i better i better i better probe what's going on here a little bit more and then and so you can transform someone through curiosity into being an active learner through um through illusions yeah and you're moving away from that didactic kind of yeah
0: practitioner client mm. hierarchy mm. almost and, yeah. and, and and do it together i think that's yeah. a really really nice yeah. kind of element um of, of, of that mm-hmm. um, one of the things you go into in the book in a beautifully simplistic way is the underpinnings of perception mm-hmm. and what sounded to to me essentially as, as the theory of predictive processing well that's kind of I guess the way I have sort of learnt about some of these concepts here and and so for our listeners perhaps you could give us a brief rundown of the current understandings of how it is we come to perceive our world or I guess what the, the current best theories mm-hmm sort of describing
1: sure yeah well um, I guess the first thing to say is I, I come at this question from a very humble perspective um, I think I think we're not even close to understanding consciousness and what I mean by that is we're not even close to understanding how this wet organ inside of our head can can actually give rise to us to our conscious, Experience, um, and so I guess that question is is uh, is fully open. Um, and I think the best analogy I have for that part is because um, can some people make claims about making progress in understanding that f- through functional MRI studies, through photographing the brain during different tasks, and and I think that is analogous to understanding how an iPhone is built by putting a stethoscope. Up to the wall of the factory, I think we're just so far from understanding how our, our conscious experience is actually generated. So, I want to put put a you know put a slice in the humble pie there on that part of it. Um, but what we can do, and what I think we have made pro- progress in, is understanding the rules that govern perception, um, and we can statistically model that. If you want to get mathematical about it. Um, and we can, we can test that, that theory. And, and the leading theory is this, this idea that our brain is some kind of predictive engine. Um, and what, one of the main reasons we think that is because the brain has to deal with so much incoming information, something like 11 million bits of information per second. Obviously, we can't deal with that information consciously. So our brain has to have subconscious tools to filter that, to process that and make sense of it. And it seems what the brain is doing is trying to gather information and then predict what the most likely and most sensible outcome is on the on the basis of that sensory information. Um, and that's and we can tap into that idea through illusions because we can manipulate different sensory inputs and and uh, sen- different sensory inputs into that predictive engine, I guess, if you like, and see what what changes in the outcome in terms of what we see or feel Um, so to sum that the brain is trying to predict what's really happening on the basis of all the information that it can gather Um, and i guess to to make a best guess on the basis of that uh, information
0: yeah right so uh, and what i'm hearing is a part of of that is is you know your previous experiences and, and your beliefs about this situation play a part in, in those predictions of predicting yeah. what, you know, what's the most likely yeah. explanation, I guess, or cause for this incoming sensory information, but that that model that you've got of the world is, it's, it's is malleable to
1: some extent. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think of, I think of past experiences and memories also as kind of inputs into that predictive, um, predictive engine. Um, and so I guess it, the brain is, always has an expectation of what it, what it, should, be, uh, what it should be perceiving um, and it's looking for evidence to confirm or deny that expectation or prediction as, as being accurate or not and it can update um, that, that model or that prediction on the basis of, of new information. Um, so, so I guess the, the brain is always putting together all of the information... And that's sensory data that's coming in from your eyes, ears, from your body, um, um, from your vestibular organ, from your tongue, from your from your nose through olfaction. Um, uh, but it's but it's also considering past experience, um, and I guess that's. I'm sure we'll come back to this, but it's that past experience element that makes all of us. Potentially perceive things differently because we all have. We might all have the same sensory data in a given situation, uh, but we all have different um, experiences as well. Yeah. Those
0: priors, those prior yeah. prior beliefs, etc., and experiences, and so on. Um, yeah, I, I think that's really clear. And uh, yeah, I just I, I love that idea that there's there's multiple factors here, so we can play around with the actual incoming sensory information. But we can also play around with someone's experiences, so mm-hmm. providing opportunities for them to update their internal model, have new memories, new new priors in which they are predicting incoming
1: sensory information. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you know, as you as you highlighted already, the the book alludes to those ideas, but it doesn't talk specifically about um, predictive processing because it can be kind of confusing. I find myself stumbling over the the terms and the the explanations of it. Um, but if we can if we can have people experience an illusion and then we can highlight what elements of that illusion are because of past experience or predictions and and what elements of that are because of the direction of the lighting um it, that's apparent in the picture or the shading or the links between things um it, yeah it allows us to draw out i guess what predictive processing is trying to describe but in an experiential way
0: yeah I um I guess one of the downsides of a podcast is we um can't show images of uh, <laughs> your book and and, and these visual illusions, which I think are really compelling, and, and you've done a really great job putting, putting this together. Um, but to explore this in relation to pain, I thought this would be a, a great way to, to do it with maybe some audio illusions that we could break down um, and um, hear your thoughts on what can we learn from the, these experiences that we can do on the podcast and, um, yeah, discuss a little bit further and, and, and we'll come back to um, the relevance of this in terms of the, the clinical setting. Um, afterwards as well so maybe we'll start with the audio illusion that we heard right at the at the very start the Yenny or Laurel um, audio illusion so what I'll do is I'll I'll play it again for for listeners to be able to just hear what we're talking about and just think about are you hearing the name Laurel or are you hearing the name Yenny? Yenny. Yenny?
1: Yenny, Yenny,
0: So we've got these, these these two factions of society that that's, <laughs> are the yeah, Laurel and There's this partisanship divide, it seems, and the
1: civil war. I think. <laughs> I've seen Laurel threads Yeti. on
0: YouTube that you know <laughs> become so divisive, and and I think that's an interesting um, component of all of this as well. That it, we we have this um, um, illusion that what we perceive is reality, and. Everyone else that perceives something
1: different is, um, uh, you know, batshit crazy. Um, it just occurs to me we could conquer world peace in this podcast, here, right? <laughs> because I think the compelling case to be made here is that both perceptions are perfectly understandable on the basis of this, the sensory data or that audio data that, that is actually there. So maybe, maybe we can help people come to understand this.
0: Right. And I, and I think, you know, when I was kind of thinking about this podcast, um, I, I was thinking th- there's an element to all of this that really gives rise to having more empathy for our, you know, for our patients, our clients, mm. but virtually everyone in our lives because we can start to realise and we can, through these experiences, even go, what I'm perceiving can be vastly different mm. to the next person, Right. But there is a reality that we're, we're, it's our best guess at, at what this actually means and what's causing that. Mm. So uh, I think just being open to the idea that we are very fallible as humans and we are making predictions based on, like you said, those prior experiences, and you know, given that sensory information coming in. Um, what I'll do is I'm, I'm going to play that same audio tune now and I'm going to start playing around with the frequencies. So if you are someone that hears Laurel and you can't for the life of you hear Yanny, I'm going to start changing the frequencies a little bit more and just have a think of when it is that you start hearing Yanny rather than Laurel. Now, I, I, I don't hear it change to Yenny until right at the very end there. So it, it seems that it, would an explanation for this that based on my prior and previous experience, the, I'm, I'm biasing those lower frequencies and, and using those to make sense of that auditory input. Would that be a, a fair explanation or where do
1: we sit with that, Dan? It has to be something like that, doesn't it? Because we're both hearing the same audio track. Uh, but we're hearing different things. So, it, in a way, it can't be anything to do with the the input itself. Um, although, um, though indeed, for uh, if my anatomy, for example, means I tend to um, it's, uh, higher frequencies tend to sound, transmit through my um, eardrum or something more. You know, there could be an um, some input difference uh, between us. Um, but. Uh, the larger component, I think, is the way we're processing that information based on on, on past experience. Yep. Um, and I think that the beautiful thing about what you just did is you can alter that audio track and you're not altering the frequency at all. You're altering something like the tone mm. of it or the, or, the, or the bias towards the low or the high tones. Right, yeah. And so without much effort that those people on the Laurel faction <laughs> can can have some empathy for those uh, in the Yanni um, faction. And they can even, if they move that slider themselves, they can see how it's can just actually be the slightest tweak in the tone to shift between one and the other. And, you know, the analogy to this in our book, of course, is that the blue dress illusion. Um, and we've got a, a fold over page that blocks out some of the image in a way that those people who previously saw the dress as blue and black can now see it as white and gold yeah. and that was an amazing you know divisive faction as well wasn't it? <laughs>
0: you see a black and blue dress or a gold and a white dress and people got very angry about that and I, I do I do enjoy reading those threads yes. um, but like you said like that uh, what I'm using right now is this is from the New York Times so I'll put the link in, in the show notes for people to be able to go and check out themselves where you can actually play this, this um, audio tune and play with the frequencies yourself. So I think that's quite interesting. Now, for those of you who hear Yenny at home and just want this same experience, I'm going to play it and now I'm going to do a bit of a shift to, to boost um, the frequencies. Yenny. 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 Yenny.
1: Laurel, 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 laurel.
0: Did that change for you, Dan? Because I know you originally heard Yanni.
1: That... Yeah, very quickly on that one.
0: Yeah, that that changed yeah real early on. Mm. Yeah, it just sounded like laurel the whole time for me. Yeah. So most of that scale for me is laurel. So it sounds like mm. a really quite a strong prior mm. to to hearing laurel. <laughs> um, yeah. Super fascinating that one. All right, let's um, go on to a bit of a, a different one here, and this is um, an audio clip of a, a football chant um, that um, blew up on on TikTok. And so, I'm going to tell you, um, listener at home, um, I'm going to prime you with what you are listening for in this in this soccer chant, and then I'm going to be changing what I want you what, what I want you to be hearing. So, to begin with, I want you to listen for Bart Simpson bouncing. Bart Simpson bouncing.
1: That That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. That is
0: embarrassing. That is embarrassing. All right. So, You could probably hear that Bart Simpson bouncing coming through in the chart. Now this time I'm gonna play the exact same audio, but this time I want you to think about the words. That isn't my receipt. Alright? That isn't
1: my receipt.
0: It's great, isn't it? Like For me, like like I just grab onto that straight away and it's like within two repetitions of it, I'm like, I could not be anything different to, to what I'm thinking. All right, we're going to do the same thing again, but this time I'm going to use the words that is embarrassing. That is embarrassing! That is embarrassing! That is embarrassing! That is embarrassing! That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing! Once again, got me, got me very, very, very quickly there as well. Um, and, and let's do it just one more time, and that's I'm chasing Martian. I'm chasing Martian. That is
1: embarrassing. That is 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 embarrassing.
0: That one was a bit harder for me, to, to be honest. I, I feel like I, I was starting to really bias some of those things that I'd heard in, in the first three.
1: How, how about you, Dan? Uh, I was lost. I was, I was, I was completely sold with <laughs> whatever you said is exactly oh, what right. I what I heard in those. Oh, I'll
0: be very interested yeah. to hear um, yeah. how people found that at home as well. But that last one, yeah, it was wasn't as strong for me, which which was interesting because earlier. When I was playing it, it yeah, yeah. I like could, all, all four of those. Were,
1: so, yeah. so tell me, what, what's going on in, in, in this? What can we learn from this? Well, there's so much to love about um, that one. Um, I, to me, I think the, the key message there is that our sensory inputs are inherently really messy. Um, so, you know, there's this process in which things happening in the world are converted to nerve impulses, really. And then those those nerve impulses have a, a, I guess, a signal, a central point, and they have a noise associated with them. But it's just data. And the challenge for the brain is to make sense of that data. And given that that data is not clear, what the brain likes to do is look for any other signals it can that help it make sense of that. Um, and so if you if we all came and heard that um, that audio track without any priming, so we call that priming when we, you know, Uh, give some information and then play something. Uh, Probably we would all, either we would think it's like, I can't hear anything in that, it's just noise. It's just white noise to me. Um, Probably many of us would come up with um, just different, we just wouldn't agree on what it says. We'd come up with all kinds of random things. And I think the original track, um, they give about seven different examples. I think you just went through three or four. There might be 15 or 20 different ones if you, you know, crowdsourced. the question: What does this say? Um, um, so, the, so the effect there is that you give some information. In fact, the information you give is very clear. Um, and so, this, so just to sum that first point: sensor input's messy, and the brain wants to get wants to gather other information so that it can make better sense of it. But the brain also latches on to information that is more clear. And it will bias that clear information over information that is inherently a bit more noisy. Um, And so you verbally telling me something, I've got a very clear um, uh, memory in my mind of what you've just told me it should sound like. And then when that is combined, if you like, in this predictive processing model, with that audio track that's a bit noisy, um, I'm, I'm going to be biased to perceiving the clear information that. That you've told me um and i you know we don't always have to link this back to pain because i do like people to just sit with these ideas and come up with them themselves but information from the body is inherently noisy um the things we see and the things we're told are inherently more clear and so i think that's where i'm convinced that pain can be influenced powerfully by things that aren't just those things happening in the body because our our body sensory systems are just not not necessarily as clear as a lot of um, as a lot of other inputs into that predictive processing model
0: so in that in that role of a, a therapist whether it be a physio chiro exercise physiologist whatever it might be we've got uh, I guess a a way of biasing their their top-down predictions of what that incoming sensory information is mm. coming from their body, whether it be their back, yeah. their knees, or, or, or whatnot, where what we tell them could bias them toward, um, I guess, more negative perceptions of that incoming sensory information mm. or alternatively more positive, yeah. uh, would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And some people, I think, get very, very good at this. Um, hypnotists that work with acute pain in um you know the children's hospital here in adelaide get really good at this because they're um i guess manipulating those 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 expectations those top-down predictions of what people should feel uh in real time um i think often it's a bit slower in the clinic um because people have to digest information and they have to change the way that they're viewing their, their problem over, over time. Um, but I definitely think there's a pathway there. And, you know, maybe this is something that over time we'll get better at as well. Um, but it, it is difficult, it's always difficult to know how much we can influence um, because almost always there's something relevant in the body. Um, and I guess our job as as clinicians in part is to, is to is to try to, um, to build an understanding of that patient and how much, um, how much of their contributors are biomechanical, are inflammatory, are pathoanatomical, and how much are other things happening in the nervous system that um, we can influence in other ways. How much do we know about that? That
0: flexibility of, of someone's, uh, I guess, their their prior schema, if you will, in in terms of. Um, you know, if we think about the, the dress illusion, that the black and blue versus the gold and white perceptions of that dress, um, for, from my recall, I think it was like sort of one to 2% of the population can switch between the two and perceive the two, where mm. it seems like they're kind of more, uh, for lack of better terminology, psychologically flexible, perhaps. What, what do we know about the ability for people to um, alter how? willing i guess not not necessarily consciously willing but flexible at updating their models of the world
1: um yeah that's this is a great question and in one sense the million dollar question um i don't think it's easy um and you know my everyday evidence for that is most of these illusions whether they're in the book or the audio ones that um we're exploring today you can't not perceive them the way you perceive them just by knowing that it's an illusion, for example. So um, it's not like a switch that you can um, suddenly perceive something differently. Um, but there, there's a number of studies with illusions. I think um, I, have, I have to chase up exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's like a rotating cage illusion or something and everyone perceives it rotating a particular direction. It's something like that, um, and through a, um, a perceptual learning process, you can learn to see it rotating the other way. Um, and so, I guess the the process there is to update your prior expectations about um, you know what way it should be rotating, um, or in some other way influence the way that um, uh, that illusion is being processed and then that does change the way so um but it's not it's usually not instant um although there are cases of of it but more often than not it's hard work to change um perceptions yeah yeah imagine um is
0: is that a bit similar to the the rotating dancer
1: illusion it might be the one i was thinking of yeah Yeah, she's rotating on a um like a trapeze or something isn't she yeah after
0: yeah, right. yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting because yeah, we can put that in the show yeah. notes as well. I mean, all of these things I find, you know, mm. so interesting and uh, I think really enlightening to mm. how fallible my my own existence is uh, trying oh, yeah. to understand what's happening out in yeah. the world outside the darkness of my skull and, and yeah. body. Um, all right, so one more illusion um, before we, we just continue on. Um, and this one <laughs> requires and doesn't require a language warning, which I find really, really interesting in itself. So, um, if you are offended by la- bad language, you may still be offended, but that's your own brain's fault for, for kind of filling in the gaps here. Um, and this is the phoneme restoration effect, which, um, we'll, we'll break down in a second. So I'm going to play that. In English, f- falls into many grammatical categories. As a transitive verb, for instance, John f***ed Shirley. As an intransitive verb, Shirley f-. Its meaning's not always sexual. It can be used as an adjective, such as, John's doing all the f***ing work. As part of an adverb, Shirley talks too f- much. As an adverb, enhancing an adjective, Shirley is f***ing beautiful. As a noun, I don't give a f- as part of a word, absolutely, or incredible, and as almost every word in a sentence. <laughs> f- <laughs> it is like uh, it just cracks me up every time. It's just because uh, I, I find myself just filling in those g- gaps. And, like, there's no. There's no other word that, that fits in there and I'm, I'm filling in those gaps of what's going on, but can you tell us more? What, what's it's, happening here? What also, do we learn from this?
1: It also cracks us up because we're juvenile adolescents.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't do want to go there, but, uh, you know.
1: As we said before yeah. the show, the, the language warning wasn't necessary because there was actually no, no swearing. <laughs> um, so the, I think the, the message here is the brain doesn't like things that are incomplete. It likes to make sense of of things, um, and so what it tends to do is fill in the gaps. Um, and this I, this was perhaps the most funny example of this. Maybe not the most convincing. I've I heard more more convincing versions of this um, of this illusion. Um, but but as a, as I said, the brain wants to make sense of things. It doesn't like things that don't make sense. I think this is also why. Um, we as humans tend to see things in clouds or we tend to see things in the stars because our brain is seeing what's there. Um, often it's ambiguous and it's it's trying to turn that into something and obviously it wants to turn it into the best fit, I guess. And obviously the best fit in this case was a, was a swear word. Um, but I think a beautiful link of this idea um, to pain partly is going back to this idea that, there's, un- there's uncertainty in sensory information from, from the body. Um, another way really of saying that is that there's gaps in that sensory information, that the full picture is not always there for our brain to really draw solid conclusions from. And so it makes, to a certain degree, it makes some assumptions or fills in the gaps to make sense of what is or isn't happening in the body. Um, but I think it... A key, um, I guess, point to layer on top of that is that we're sort of wired to be better safe than sorry. Um, We call this in the book the snake and the stick principle Um, because in a way it's better for us to see a stick and think it's a snake than it is for us to see a snake and think it's a stick. So... In these, in this perceptual process of making assumptions, I think we're also biased towards assuming something's wrong. Okay. So I think to a certain degree, we're somewhat biased to have pain, even when we don't necessarily need it. At least more so than we're biased to n- not having pain when we do need it, if that makes sense. And I, I think that and it's a nice, nice little tale to tell um, if people's trying to work out. Why is it that I, you know, you're telling me my body is in pretty good shape, but I still have so much pain? I think the story that as humans we're a little bit biased in that direction, we're biased a bit to be safe than sorry, could be part of that reassuring story, I guess, a part of making sense of having pain that doesn't necessarily fit with what's happening um, in the body. so yeah, another nice allusion to draw out just something a little bit a little bit different about how we think pain works.
0: There's people who might be listening right now are going, you know this narrative suggests that you know pain is just all in the head or all of the issues that we're dealing with within the clinical interaction is about um, misprocessing maybe. Of mm. sensory information because they've got faulty previous experiences and beliefs. Mm. How I, I I understand that there's there's so much more to it than that. But what would you say to those people to kind of I guess validate that that's that's not quite the narrative mm. that's
1: should, should be kind of coming across? Well, thanks for bringing this up because um, I think this is something we're all a little bit paranoid about in a way, um, the last thing we want is people walking away thinking we're just telling them that their pain's not real or they're just making it up or it's all in their head. Um, so, you know, they're tricky waters, I guess, for us to all navigate um, and, um, you know, we all need to, to work on our communication and really think about the way we present these ideas. Um, We're cautious not to say pain is an illusion, Um, but it's more like what we're trying to say is an illusion is an illusion and other perceptions that are not illusions are also perceptions. So what illusions and perceptions have in common is that they're both perceptions. And so they're both following the same, same rules, I guess. It's just in these illusions, we have this chance to see what it is that's influencing that perception in a, in a certain way um, um, so i guess that that's a that's a bit of bit of background but i think i think we just have to be have to be cautious to make sure that we're acknowledging people's pain is real acknowledging that all pain is real but that pain can be can have different contributing factors um, and so and, and, of course, pain might feel the same if it's purely the result of an expectation of pain. Um, it might feel exactly the same as the pain of cutting off your arm, but the causes are different, I guess. But I think, you know, I think we you don't run into this problem as much if you are already acknowledging the multiple components to anyone's problem and i think it's so rare that you can't help someone find some things to work on in their body that are contributing to their problem and so if you're cautious to pay attention to those and layer on to that other important psycho throwaway line but other important psychosocial things the way the way they think their behaviors and, and those sort of things and I think it's not that tricky to avoid that, that case. Um, but if you're gonna if you're gonna try if you're gonna if you're going to if you're convinced that someone's problem is a hundred percent a result of central nervous system, system processing, um then you know you you got you've got your work cut out <laughs> cut out for you in um, bringing them on board with that story, and it, it can be done. But I also don't think you need to, because we all need to. We all need to look after our bodies, in different, different ways. Well,
0: there is that component where it's like there, there, there's no brain in the vat kind of ex- yeah. experiment, right? Like we we're, there's no situation where we don't exist with a bo- without a body and yeah. without a brain and without a social environment around us. And you know, we can't really separate them apart. Yeah. So if we're kind of validating their Experience and what they've been through, and and using some of these ideas to, I guess, hopefully, like, I guess, create that curiosity that we spoke about earlier on, Mm. so that they can be engaged with the idea and the concept that there's far more um, factors that we can use to help recovery Mm. than just, um, you know, getting on the tool belt and cutting out your disc or, or, you know, whatever it might be. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly, and I think we're, you know, I think it's like I'm catching up a little bit. We, we broadening, we're broadening our understanding. I think, of what constitutes sensory processing. You know, there's so much processing that happens not just in the brain but in the spinal cord, and we're now acknowledging that the immune system, which there are more immune cells in the nervous system than there are neurons, we're acknowledging that they're part of processing what's going on and altering processing and those sorts of things as well and then the immune system also of course is in the body in the periphery and it can it can alter sensory processing and sensitivity out there so i think if we just if we have this more holistic understanding of what constitutes sensory processing and we're bringing the body i guess into that because all of that is is tied together, you know, it's the false dichotomy idea that there's the, the brain and the, and the body, then, you know, I think with that sort of framing, we can, I guess, avoid running into trouble with um, becoming too narrow or giving the impression to someone that we think it's all in one component and, and not in another. It, it, it just
0: made me think about um, you know some of the, you know, the Mick Thackers and Neil Seths in the world who are you know really at the forefront of predictive processing and, and these ideas who are th- sort of theorising that this prediction error um, sort of theory is happening in our periphery and, and mm. that it's part of the hierarchy all the way up to our brain. So mm. I, I think that's kind of like a nice thought to... Um, think about that, you know, this is happening in the preference not just the brain, it's the whole nervous system mm. and that whole person that's really, mm. um, you know, I guess trying to survive this um, this world and, this world. you know, uh, provide a, a healthy um, mm. life for themselves and, and their family. All right, so, the, I mean, there's, there's so much good stuff I think we can learn from those illusions, but how have you found the use of, I guess, illusions in the context of clinical practice? You know, how do you see... These being used, um, does your book come into this situation? Have you used illusions in, in different ways? How, how have you found that?
1: Well, you know, of course I love the idea that the, the book can be part of that process. Um, and it, we've tried to write it in a way that that is provocative in a sort of individual learning kind of way. So, yes, a clinician should, could... Pull it off the shelf to to highlight some element of perception in a one on one situation, but I think it's it works great as a um, as a. We've we started some work um, on your body. We've got some things to work on there. Um, I think we can also start to think about what else is happening in the nervous system, so that we're not just tackling this from one angle. And there's some great ideas in this book, or in explain pain, or whatever. Um, Go and have a read, and we can talk about it um, next time. Or we'll see what see what it highlights to you, or see what rings true t- to you. Um, so I love that idea. It's also, um, I think, and I take no credit for this because I wasn't the artist, but I think it's also visually stunning. I think it's a great coffee table book in a, in a clinic waiting room or something like that. So I like that. I the idea that it that someone can. Can read through a couple of illusions and and I guess get primed for a different way of thinking um, before they've left the left the waiting room. Um, yeah, mostly through the, the brain bus. I'm not um, I'm not clinically active in an intensive way at the moment, so a lot of my um, patient interactions have been through the the pain revolution, and you know, as I shared earlier, I think. I'm convinced that they they can be powerful learning experiences, I guess, and um, I guess in the past we've we've tended to explain some of the neuroscience of how pain works um, as a way of um, bringing people on board with a different way of thinking about pain or one that incorporates changes in the in the nervous system and um, and I think I think some people engage with that really well, I think. Uh, and I think some people might engage with just an understanding of pain that, to a certain degree, bypasses the neurophysiology and just and goes straight to the rules of how perception works. So um, it could be an alternative or a complementary um, way of explaining how pain works and how the pain system is adaptable and how it's influenced by many different factors. Um, but it's, yeah, it's sort of parallel to that, without the neurophysiology um, being built in. So, and I guess the other thing to say there is, we're still learning where it fits um, because it's, um, you know, it's, it's the new kid on the on the block, and we're hoping um, to get feedback on where people find it useful and how they use it, and all those sort of things. So, um, yeah, well, if anyone's out there and they and they use it, um, you know love to hear from you yeah
0: i think something you said in there was um yeah you, know, you know kind of giving someone like and I'll, and I'll do this in my clinical practice where i'll send them a video or an article you know whatever it might be and then have an open discussion about how did that resonate with you how how did you how did you find that rather than going oh this is the re, you know this is the reason why you were experiencing that which i think you know, very rarely can we say with any degree of certainty. yeah. And and I found that to be a really nice way to approach the use of illusions or neurophysiology education or all or, or those things personally because I always yeah. feel a little bit tentative like when it comes to, you yeah. know, doing, I guess, anything that even starts the borderline on that didactic kind of, yeah. um, let me explain this to you.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's, yeah, it's just this process of creating awareness of a knowledge gap and then filling the knowledge gap. Yeah. Um, otherwise there's no gap to fill. It's really borderline on like that, that
0: motivational interviewing yeah. sort of concepts and yeah. all the theory around that too, which yeah. works yeah. really, really well. just wanted to talk about you know a couple other things just on the side here now um because I mean you're you've got background in using virtual reality in your research uh which like I said earlier you know some of your ideas um have been very influential in in my own research um particularly in my master's um what um what I'd like to know is yeah what what are you doing at the moment in that space what can you tell Mm -hmm. us about because I'm sure there's a, a few things that I've Caught wind of that might not be open for everyone just yet, but um, yeah. it's an exciting space. Tell tell me more.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a few exciting things um I'm working on. Um, I guess one thing to know about me is that a lot of my research exists on this um on this highly exploratory, um, experimental side of things, not necessarily on the we're ready for clinical translation yeah. um, end of things. Um, but exciting ideas, nonetheless. Um, but I, I just say that to so, um, you know, because well, people are free to run away and use these ideas, but they need to do so um, with the awareness that the evidence base is limited. But um, the, the first thing that um, excites me um, is this idea of um, well, we've we've called it virtual reality body image training, um, and we, we've started using this idea in people with chronic back pain who feel weak, they feel vulnerable, they feel broken, they feel like they can't do anything, they feel stiff, they're in pain. And what we basically do is have them become superheroes in virtual reality. And the first thing that we find is that at least for the duration that they become those superheroes, they feel stronger, they feel more agile, they feel like they can move more. Um, and this this idea um, came from a guy called Mel Slater in Spain who's done some really interesting things like had people become Albert Einstein in virtual reality and showed that they perform better on cognitive tasks. And he's had people play the drums while embodying a white person and a black person. And surprise, surprise, when they become a black person, they, they move more and they hit the drums harder. Um uh and they um they perform uh, better on tests of implicit racial bias. So there's there's something powerful about I guess swapping your body for a different body in virtual reality. Um and it's my hope that we can leverage that to some um therapeutic benefit um down the track. So I guess that's exciting idea number one. Um I just actually um had a case report accepted um pain which I'm really happy about it's hard to get published in pain at any rate um let alone a, yeah, a case, case report but yeah. I think that goes to the um to the novelty and the the um the interest level of it so it's um two parts to the case report um it was a, a chat with long-standing complex regional pain syndrome um the first finding was that in virtual reality, when things touched his painful hand, so we're talking about visually simulated touch without any actual mechanical touch, um, that would evoke his pain and like visible horrific pain. He would withdraw his hand, his hand would shake um, when he would do things like put his um, his virtual hand under virtual running water, those sort of things. So well, we we wanted to see if we could address that effect or extinguish it as we as we say so we started by creating a scale of visually simulated touch um from um visually simulated touch that was more gentle like putting hand under running water through to more provocative visually simulated touch which at the other end was getting a a virtual barbecue poker and literally stabbing the the virtual hand Um, so Um, As I said, step one was just showing that effect and the consistency of that visually evoked pain. And step two was seeing if we could extinguish it. And over 12 weeks of gradually exposing himself to this this visually simulated touch through doing different activities in virtual reality, almost completely extinguished that effect. In, In fact, at the end of 12 weeks, he was repeatedly stabbing himself with this barbecue poker up to 70 seconds before he got any any pain at all. Wow. And, and do um, we see <laughs> changes in other systemic effects like inflammation or did you look at those things or skin colour change, etc.? We didn't assess those things, but we did assess what effect it had on clinical outcomes outside of virtual reality yeah. and it had n- none. So we had this... Really profound effects in virtual reality, in that we almost completely extinguished his sensitivity to that visually simulated touch, with having almost no real world uh, real world change. Um, so I think that's a that says something powerful about how pain works, or uh, you know, it's an extreme version of it, but I think it highlights something about how pain works Um, but it also says uh, something like treatments that we apply in one context don't necessarily generalize to another context Um, and so I guess as we explore this idea further our, our challenge is well if this idea has some clinical benefit in its future we're going to have to tackle this problem of how we get that effect to carry over into um, to the real world. Yeah. So that's what, that's what's exciting me at the moment.
0: Man, that's unreal. That's, that sounds really interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to um, reading that paper and possibly even just linking it in the show notes if if yeah. if that's something you're happy with us to do. Um, I guess one question that came from that for me just then is like I'm seeing lots of practices at the moment, um, uh, I guess, entertain this idea of bringing VR into, mm-hmm. the, into the clinic? Where are we at, at that stage? Is it premature to be using that where we could be spending our time better on other strategies and getting that right or, you know, is there a, a place for it already mm-hmm. in, in the clinic?
1: I do think there's really interesting stuff coming up the pipeline, companies like Reality Health and mm-hmm. Karuna VR and others who are, are doing interesting things um but there but a lot of that is just coming up the pipeline it's hard to get your hands on right now um i think there are there are interesting things you can do just with off the shelf games if the goal is for example to just get people moving in an environment that's maybe analgesic just because it's distracting um so i think you can get creative with existing games and things and apply them. I think really with any technology, we have to ask ourselves always, what what does this add to an equivalent version of this in the real world? Because mm-hmm. there is that potential when we start talking about virtual reality and metaverses and augmented reality. Um, there is that potential that we become a bit removed from functionally functionally relevant um, training movement activities or whatever, and maybe even there's this, maybe even what I'm saying here is somewhat highlighted by the case report I said where we didn't get a we didn't get a real world effect, even though we got a profound in VR kind of effect. So I think we have to be a bit, a little bit cautious. Um, but I, I do think we can get creative and do interesting things, particularly with existing games, which don't cost anything. Um, and if we've got in mind the needs of the patient and we can match it to particular games because of whatever reason, maybe a game gives really good visual feedback and we think it can train proprioceptional balance or something, you know, I think there are um, opportunities there, but you also have to be a bit willing to. Spend the time and research to get to know what software's out there so that you can match patients to different applications. It's, um, I think phrases like virtual reality has been shown to be effective in low back pain is a complete throwaway to me because virtual reality isn't a treatment, it's a medium or a tool for delivering a different treatment. So you have to think. Well, is my treatment graded activity? Is my is the treatment I want to apply balance training, whatever it is? And then if you if you want to use virtual reality as a tool for delivering that, then I think that's the right way to think about it. With the caveat that you need to ask yourself, can I do this better outside of VR than I can inside of VR? So it's a bit to think think about there. So much to yeah. think about, yeah,
0: Dan. This has been such a fun chat, and I'm um, I'm so privileged that you know you're at UniSA now as well. So I can come and annoy you in your office all the time, and and have more of these chats. And maybe we'll do another one of these in the, in the future because I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who have been very intrigued by your work. Um, firstly. Congratulations and well done on your book, and to Lorimer Mosley as well, obviously, who um, is your co-author. And it's it's a fantastic little book, and I encourage everyone to go out and grab it, which is available on the Noi uh, website as well. Um, but where else can they get it, and how can everyone get in contact with you if they've got questions or stay in touch, and etc.
1: Yeah, thanks, and thanks for the chat. Let's yeah, let's definitely do it again sometime. Um, the Neugroup Group website is the the best place to get the book. Um, at this stage, people can connect with me on Twitter at Daniel Harvey. Um, that's Harvey with an I E, not an not an E Y. Um, and I'd also love to give a plug for the One Thing um, podcast. These are short snippets where we ask experts yeah. what's the one thing they would like to know. Uh, they would like people in pain to know. And so the best way for people to, <laughs> to get in touch with the One Thing um, podcast is also the uh, the Twitter, which is at One Thing underscore Pain, and the, a new season of that will be uh, released pretty soon.
0: That's unreal, mate. And obviously, you're a business busy, busy man, <laughs> judging from your phone calls. Um, <laughs> but no, thanks again for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And for those of you at home, if you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, feel free to reach out, like, subscribe and share with colleagues and friends. And I really appreciate that. Otherwise, until next time.